Good morning. Everybody stand for the reading of God's word. This morning's scripture is Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Um, In the Blue Bible, it's on page 488. And if you do not have a Bible at home, please take one of these home as a gift. So Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Hear the word of the Lord. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Gloria. Let's pray together for this time of hearing God's Word. Lord, we thank you for the Scriptures. God, we thank you for the the power of your Word. We thank you that you do speak to us with authority. And Lord, we pray that today that we would eliminate from ourselves, from our minds, from our hearts, any obstacles to allowing your word to speak to us authoritatively, Lord. We just pray that you would remove by your spirit from our hearts any unbelief, any apathy, anything that uh, would would easily uh, cause us to be drowsy, both physically and spiritually in the presence of your word as it is spoken. Lord, we pray for divine enabling of ourselves to hear, of myself to speak, Lord, that uh, we would do justice to your word, that we would hear it uh, with renewed hearts, and that I would speak it with an enabled tongue, Lord God. We thank you for all of this. Lord, we pray that we would leave here transformed, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ by the hearing of your word. We ask all this in your precious holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So we are four weeks into a series on the book of Mark, the shortest of the Gospels of Jesus. Uh, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and Mark, of course, is, is, uh, is the shortest. And so if you haven't heard all of these messages, let me very quickly bring you up to speed. So Jesus has been announced by John the Baptist. John the Baptist has, has subsequently baptized Jesus. Jesus goes into the wilderness, is tested, tempted by the devil. He comes out, he begins to preach. A message of repentance is made public in that. And then he begins to choose uh, a, a men that he desires to instruct. He, he's preparing them for apostolic ministry. They will be with him to serve him and accompany him. He begins with... Andrew, his brother Simon, James, his brother John. And so now here we are, the three years 
of ministry, a public ministry of the long-awaited Messiah are underway. It's official. Um, and how would you imagine uh, that the most important man ever to walk the face of the earth, the most important moment, we talked about that last week, the, the kairos has come. How do you imagine that Jesus would proceed now that everything has been prepared and everything is ready? Do you imagine that he would hire the best PR firm in Jerusalem so that they could produce a bunch of slick advertisement so that everyone would know that his kingdom-oriented ministry was exactly what they were looking for? Do you imagine that he would find the most public setting, like the courts of the temple in Jerusalem, and perhaps call down fire or perform some other dramatic sign? Actually, what Jesus did, according to the first verse of our text today, is he remembered the Sabbath and kept it holy. It doesn't sound as dramatic as calling down fire, but Jesus was committed to keeping the fourth commandment. It was his custom, what Luke tells us, that he would gather with other Jews on the Sabbath at the synagogue, here in this case at Capernaum, and, and this was the place for Jews in the first century where the scriptures were expounded to them. Now, this we could rush right past that and think, that all it's telling us is the time and the setting of Jesus beginning his ministry. But I want to ask you to, to consider yourself in that very small piece of information that we got. Because sometimes I think we have grand visions, we have ideas of what we would do for God. And yet, in, in our planning and, and, dare I say it, our scheming, we forget and we overlook Ordinary things, simple means of grace, things like what we're doing today, being with God's people, letting our lives be examined by the Bible, approaching the throne of grace with corporate prayers of the people of God, corporate songs of worship and praise. Now the synagogue, it was a very, very important part of Jewish life especially after the days of, of their exile in Babylon and the, the subsequent dark days of, of their subjugation to Persia and Greece and now in Jesus' time to Rome. Um, it was a place where they would gather to hear the Scriptures read, the Mosaic Law uh, explained, and, and, and it was a place for the instruction of children. Children, Jewish children, were actually taught to read right there in the synagogue. Over and above that, it was a it was a place. It was a public court uh, for where trials were held and and sometimes even sentences were carried out. Um, the synagogue, however, shouldn't be confused with the temple in Jerusalem. It wasn't just another form of the temple. It was the temple in Jerusalem where where sacrifices were made, where the feasts were kept. The the temple was the hub of the priesthood in Jesus' day. But a synagogue ordinarily would not have a priest present unless that priest was visiting his hometown synagogue. 
Now, any small village throughout Judea could have a synagogue as long as there were at least 10 Jewish men over the age of 13 years old. How would you like to go to a church uh, uh, operated by 10 13-year-olds? I'll just let that sink in for a little while. You don't have it so bad here. These gathering places had a group of elders that regulated the policies of the gathering. There was also a ruler of the synagogue. He wasn't the spiritual leader. He oversaw the building and he planned the services so that they would be orderly. But the reading and the teaching in the synagogue was done by someone who was known as the delegate of the, of the congregation. And this position was not a permanent position. It would rotate uh, sometimes even week to week. It, usually the person who was chosen as the delegate was a knowledgeable person, a well-read person, perhaps a scribe, who would instruct from the Scriptures, it would give comments on, on the Mosaic Law, and then he would pray. And oftentimes, a, a visiting rabbi would be asked to teach. That was the privilege given to him as a visiting rabbi. So I said all that to tell you this is how Jesus, who had recently been recognized as a rabbi by gathering to himself his first few disciples, came to teach at the synagogue at Capernaum. Now Mark doesn't, because we talked about this earlier when we began this series, Mark moves fast, he focuses on what Jesus did, less on what Jesus said like Luke and John do, but, but he, he doesn't tell us what Jesus said in this message. But it's safe to assume that Jesus stayed on message. What was Jesus' message? Well, we talked about last week. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This became the, the sum total, the, 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 the synopsis of Jesus' message. In fact, in parables and, and disputes with his enemies throughout the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, it, when, in miracles, and even when Jesus would cast out devils, and even when he resurrected people on three separate occasions, the arrival of the kingdom was always the bullseye of Christ's message. It wasn't, it wasn't anything less than that. It wasn't anything more than that. What Jesus came to proclaim was that the, the kingdom of God right here on earth had arrived. He always was declaring by his words, and his actions that, that with his appearance, everything had changed. It, what he was saying is, as Paul would later put it in 2 Corinthians, that the old was truly gone and the brand new had come. Why is this important? Because it's, it's tragic. It's, it's such a, 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 a thing that... that that, that misrepresents the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we who call ourselves believers will still act as though everything was the same. When we live by the same customs, the same rules, the same values as those who are perishing among us. When we have the same fears and the same anxieties, when we live as though we are still entrapped in the same government, in the same economy, 
But what I want you to see is no matter how much we oftentimes diminish it, the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ isn't limited to a personal salvation. It isn't just that we as individuals can have our sins washed away, as great as that is, as much as it is truly an element of the gospel. What, what Jesus wants us to see when he talks about the kingdom coming is his message is much bigger. His work is cosmic in scale. It involves everything, every part of the created order. In fact, John saw this. He, he says in Revelation 21.5, he said, And he who was seated on the throne said this, Behold, I am making all things new. Not just you. I'm glad He's making you you. I'm making you new. I'm telling you, my wife is thrilled that Jesus is making me new. Because the old me wasn't that great. But it's not just about something He's doing in me. That's why you'll never hear here in this church the term, your personal Lord and Savior. He is your cosmic Lord and Savior. He's changing everything. He's revolutionizing the whole creation. By stages, step by step, but someday all of this will be brand new. Why? Because the kingdom has come. So Mark, as I said, doesn't give us a transcript of Jesus' teaching that day. What he does instead is he tells us how Jesus' teaching affected those who heard it. The impact that it had on him. The Bible tells us that they were astonished at his teaching. Now, I want you to know, because we have lived in a, in a realm, a time in human history where preaching has been kind of diminished to a, a, just another form of entertainment. When they said they were astonished at his teaching, it doesn't mean that they were pleased with his clever or humorous illustrations. It doesn't mean that they, he, they were swept away with his charismatic charm. In Greek, that it means when they were astonished, it means that they were literally shocked. And even that they were terrified. Verse 22 tells us what it was about the teaching of Jesus that rattled them so. Verse 22 says, He taught them as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. Jesus' teaching was radically different than what they had ever heard before. The scribes of their day were highly trained expositors. They would be the, the professors of theology of their day. They would spend time in the synagogue when they were teaching, and they would cite different rabbinic traditions, and they would give various thoughts and opinions on the teachings of the Torah. Oftentimes it sounded like a debate. Other times, it just consisted of a dry recitation of laws. Even if no one could quite remember why those laws were even important. Who had given those laws and the purpose for which he had laid them out. They had no idea. Matthew Henry describes the scribes. That's kind of hard to say, and it describes the scribes. He describes the scribes as those who, quote, expounded the law of Moses by rote as a schoolboy says his lesson. 
but they were neither acquainted with it nor affected with it. It came not from the heart and therefore came not with authority. But this was the weekly routine. This is what the Jews expected from their scribes. Now, many of you, I think, in this group, have probably seen Pastor Paul Washer's message that, that from 2002 that has kind of taken the title. He didn't give it this title, but the shocking youth message. You can catch it on YouTube. It was originally preached in 2002 before 5,000 young people who had come to an event where, sadly, the event was supposed to be about evangelism. But the event just kind of became something where they were coddled, these young people, with watered-down, low-expectation, even lower-commitment theology and what I call worshiptainment. Before Washer even spoke, right before he had spoke, the crowd of youth had heard this message that played out more like a comedy routine. He describes how everyone in the arena was just laughing uproariously, and, and, and yet they, they tried to, to just shove some kind of altar call at the end of that message. But when Paul Washer began to speak that evening, he did so stepping into the pulpit with biblical conviction. He spoke with passion, and most importantly, he spoke with authority. Before long, the only sound you can hear in this arena with 5,000 young people is a few muffled cries. Earlier in the message, Paul Washer says something about how America has rejected Christ as being the only truth. And, and when he does, it's like, it's like on cue, the crowd erupts, cheers and laughter, and, or not laughter, but cheers and applause, and there's this real agreement, yeah, Jesus is the only way, we need to be behind that. But he responds to their cheers and their applause, 5,000 young people, by very calmly saying this, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. I didn't come here to get amens. I didn't come here to be applauded. I'm talking about you. And what was seconds before uproarious applause goes to deathly silence. While Paul Washer would admit, he'd probably be embarrassed by this illustration, he would admit that he is far from Jesus, he's a fallen sinner like the rest of us. I think that night with Paul Washer, if you, I really encourage you to go watch the video from 20 years ago, but I think that night with Paul Washer is a modern day snapshot, just a hint of what the Jews in Capernaum experienced. They were used to their instructors droning on about religion, but Christ comes to him and he literally speaks from his substance. His substance is God. His, his substance is the perfectly righteous human. He speaks to them from who he is. And he offered to them absolutely no empty opinion. 
The scribes would sit down and take their place and they would, they would interpret for the crowd what Moses had said. But Jesus, just like He did on the Sermon on the Mount, would remind people of what they had heard from Moses and then He would have the audacity to say to them, after telling them what they'd heard from Moses, He would say, but I say to you. He had actually taken himself in a Jewish culture that revered Moses as just almost next to God. He took himself and he said, I am the editor of everything Moses says. You think that was crazy? In his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, Luke gives us this story. He read from Isaiah's passage, this beautiful passage describing the Spirit-anointed Messiah, and he told those listening, hey, today, in your hearing, this Scripture is fulfilled. We're not waiting for anything. The day is here. He's telling them with no punches pulled, I am the One. I am the Messiah. That's authority. When you say, hey, I'm going to tell you my interpretation of what Moses said. I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm the Messiah. By the way, in response to this very direct claim, the good people of Nazareth tried to throw him off a cliff. But Jesus never would back down from the truth. He would never soft-sell who He was. Being the Son, He spoke with the authority and the confidence of the Father. See, the scribes, spoke with hesitation. They offered you only their feeble and unsure opinions. But when Christ spoke, He filled the room with indisputable, unshakable, eternal truth. And if I may, what the world desperately needs now are believers in Christ, the one of great authority, who are also full of the Holy Spirit, who were willing to speak the words of God with God's authority. And let me tell you something. The reason we're not making much headway now is because this is never done by throwing out either our flimsy opinions of the day or trying to put together some extra-biblical prophetic utterance that we try to validate with the dangerous words, Thus saith the Lord. It is a serious thing to claim to speak for God. In fact, in the Old Testament, doing that carried the death penalty to do it falsely. So the only way you can be certain that you are speaking the authoritative words of God is by speaking the words of Holy Scripture. These words, from cover to cover, will always be superior to your best thinking. These will always be better than any opinion you have. And by an infinite margin. These words, the Bible tells us, are profitable. It teaches us that they are inerrant. It teaches us that they are infallible. That they are wholly sufficient and absolutely authoritative. As Jesus is teaching 
with this grand authority and getting the attention of everybody who's listening, something really strange happens. Mark tells us that there's a man in the synagogue who immediately, Mark's favorite word, he uses it over and over, who immediately manifests an unclean spirit. Nothing exciting ever happens at our church. We don't let 13-year-olds rule. We never have demons showing up like that. In the middle of the service, this demon just manifests. And Mark says, like I said, he appeared immediately. It was like he just suddenly showed up. Now, this isn't saying that he just kind of showed up out of thin air. What it's saying is that these demons manifested themselves abruptly. Why? Because they were in the presence of the Holy One. What's interesting, notice this, don't let the, because we're going to come back to this in several weeks, but notice this. Who, were the, who was the first created being to recognize Jesus for who He was on planet Earth? It wasn't the Jews, it wasn't the disciples, it was the devil. The devil was not fooled. The devil did not uh, see his veil of human flesh and, and, and didn't, didn't get distracted by that. He knew exactly who He was. Mark calls the spirit an unclean spirit. He doesn't call it a devil or a demon. He calls it an unclean spirit, and he does so for three reasons. First, as fallen angels, this spirit within this man had lost all trace of purity. Secondly, that this this spirit was on the on the the cosmic scale. They were the the polar opposite of God's spirit. What do we call God's spirit? The Holy Spirit. And so these being so separate were unclean. Thirdly, by their filthiness, they had infected and polluted the spirit of the human being that they occupied. So in every way, they were unclean. And we see this in the Spirit's hissing words. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? See, they realize that in the presence of Christ, they can't remain hidden. They can't lie dormant. Christ's glory has exposed them. He's everything that is foreign to them. And they have nothing in common with Christ, and so therefore they want to flee. They want out of there. Jesus Holiness was so powerful, so palpable, that in another instance, which we'll read about in a few weeks, when Jesus confronted devils, they would rather go into pigs who subsequently committed suicide than be near Jesus. Notice this, they call him Jesus of Nazareth. I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. Why did they call him that? Well, First of all, they're trying to put a a heavy focus on his humanity so that the people that are present in the synagogue will miss his divinity. They mention his despised hometown. They want to influence the people that are witnessing this exchange between the devil and Jesus to think less of Christ. They want them to say like Nathaniel did in John chapter 1, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But what's odd is after that, they also offer him what appears to be words that we would think were words of worship. 
to call him the Holy One of God, which absolutely he was. But from their lips, it's a false worship by acknowledging before everyone there his true identity. They're trying to to give a lesser opinion of of his deity. They're they're, they're saying that if they can't drag people to his humanity, they're going to give them a false impression of his deity. I mean, if, if you guys have a business and you have demons endorsing your business, how good of a reputation are you going to have for your business? Jesus does not need the testimony of demons to to prove that he is who he is. And so they thought that if they could acknowledge his true identity, they would try to be somewhat on the same level with him by either elevating themselves by their connection with him or by diminishing his glory by his connection with them. Solid deception. He's the father of lies. When they ask what... Christ's intentions are with with them. Hey, Jesus, what are you going to do to us? Are you here to destroy us? They give away valuable information. This is intelligence. They they, they give us some intel about themselves that brings real glory to Christ. What do we find out in that one question? Are you here to destroy us? What do we find out about the demonic realm by that question? Well, first, these devils show us that they are subject to Christ. If they weren't, why would they care what he wants to do with them? They're absolutely subject to Christ. They're saying, in effect, if they say, are you here to destroy us? They're saying, Christ can do whatever he wants to us. Whenever he wants to do it, is this the time? Secondly, they show that they're temporal beings by acknowledging that there is a time when they will be ultimately and finally judged. Even if this sudden appearance of the Messiah isn't the time, that time is coming, and when it does, they will not be able to hide. Thirdly, they show that they are not omniscient. How do I know that? Because they they don't know. They say, what are you here to do? They don't know why the Son of God is exactly why the Son of God is walking among humanity, having taken on the likeness of humanity. But they know that the appearance of Christ in the flesh spells big, big trouble for them. It means impending doom. It means a swift and certain end. And they are finished. But Jesus, the Bible says, rebuked him, rebuked the Spirit, and he says, be silent and come out of him. What a demonstration of Christ's power. See, the, the, the devil wants information. Hey, what are you here for, Jesus? What's this all about? Why are you messing with us? They want to deceive the people. They want to use the, the titles Jesus of Nazareth and Holy One of God to kind of mess with the people's mind. They want to buy some time. They want to put off their destruction. But Jesus, being Jesus, lets them speak no more. I think that the Greek word that's translated be silent in this passage is my new favorite word for personal prayer and spiritual warfare. The word is femao, and femao is a word you should get familiar with. It means be muzzled. Be muzzled. I once had a friend who somehow acquired a small crocodile for a pet. Not making this up. The, the crocodile was probably two and a half to three feet long, and, um, and I got to hold it 
And that sucker was solid muscle. It was everything I could as a grown man to try to keep control over it. It would wiggle and try to get away. Oftentimes I'd be at his house and I'd watch those toothy jaws clamp down on a rat or a mouse as he's feeding it, and it'd go into a death roll. And in my kind of macabre thinking, I would imagine what that alligator, what that crocodile could do to a carelessly placed hand. And I didn't want to find out. I didn't want to test my theory by offering a hand to the crocodile. But sometimes, my friend, he, would, he, he knew what he was doing, and he would come up, and he'd grab it from behind, and then, and then he would hold its mouth shut and wrap a couple layers of duct tape around its snout. And when he did that, that little beast, absolutely harmless. Completely harmless. You want to pet it, you can pet it. You want to let it free roam around your house if you were so inclined, no problem. Why? Because it's muzzled. It's completely the power of that deadly mouth is gone. And so think about this. Jesus says to an unclean spirit, be muzzled. I am eliminating the threat of you. I am taking away the thing that represents your power. The Bible says in John 8 that the devil is the father of lies. Jesus can look at a liar's mouth, a demonic lying mouth, and say, be muzzled. I'm taking away the thing that gives you your power. You can wander around all you want, but you can't say a word. Jesus has authority to silence your ancient foe. And he has the power to clamp his jaws shut. Do you guys remember Daniel? What does the Bible tell us? Daniel, for, for being faithful to God, is thrown into a den of lions, hungry lions that should have consumed him in a matter of seconds. He spends the night with them. Why? Because God sent an angel to shut the mouths of the lions. You having trouble with the devil? Samao. Ask God to come and muzzle the devil. Without the power of Christ's command, we'd all be fresh meat for his ravenous appetite. I'm not trying to make you flippant about the devil. The devil is a serious foe. He's been doing this a long time. He knows just what buttons to push. I'm not making light of the devil. In fact, Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But what I'm trying to get you to understand is one of the biggest lies the devil uh, perpetrates is to convince people like you and I that he and God are somehow equal rivals engaged in a life-or-death struggle that could go either way. This is not true. It's not true. The devil is a created being and he is subject to the sovereignty of God just as much as you and I and the entirety of creation are. I said earlier that the work of Christ was cosmic, that it wasn't just personal. And man, you see that the scope of the work of Christ so clearly in 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Do you think Jesus is going to leave anything undone? Not going to happen. He, his, his appearance 
his incarnation, his manifestation was, was brought about so that he could level, just level every demonic thing that has ever been built. The struggle and the contest is completely over. The, devils and, the devil and his minions have been soundly defeated by Jesus Christ. They won't someday be defeated. They have been defeated by Jesus Christ. So you're saying the devil isn't, isn't around anymore? No, that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying where you are in relation to the covenant of grace makes all the difference about how you relate to the devil. Did you hear me? I'm serious, did you hear me? Where you are in the covenant of grace makes all the difference about how you relate to the devil. He's still here. He can mess with you whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, but how you relate to the devil matters entirely on where you stand in the covenant of grace. Let me tell you what I mean. So if you are within the covenant of grace, if you have trusted Christ, if He is your, not just your Savior but your Lord, any harassment, any you know, attack you ever receive from the devil is completely under God's control and it's by His allowance. And there's several reasons given in the Scripture for what that may be about. Perhaps it's for your testing. Perhaps it's for your correction. Perhaps it's so that you may learn to glory in your weakness, but never mistake this, you will never, as a believer in Christ, you will never be abandoned to the threats of the devil. Never. It will not happen. But there's a whole other group of you. If you're outside of the covenant, if you're trying to make your own way and you have not bothered to make Christ your Lord, if you say, I won't, I won't be mastered by any, then you are absolutely the most to be pitied. Oh, here he goes, Mr. Hellfire and Brimstone trying to scare us with the devil now. Nope. In fact, I'm going to make you a, a, a pretty sure bet that the devil, if he has you under his, under his spell, to, may actually just completely ignore you for a little while. Things may seem to be going great for you. I mean, come on, why should he break a sweat to mess with you if you've already volunteered to do his will and to live as his captive? You're already in the bag, man. He's not going to mess with you. But the day will come, mark my words, when your terrible master will reveal himself for who he really is. And there will be no escape for you, only eternal torment. Someday you'll know. In this man's case, in the synagogue, Jesus not only muzzled the devil, but he evicted him. Matthew Poole says this, he says, he was to make no truce with him. That means Christ to the devil. He was to make no truce with him, but to destroy him and his works. And therefore, he charges him to hold his peace and to come out. See, the devil made a big show at his exit with this man. The Bible says he convulsed him and, and cried out with a loud voice. This may have been, there may have been a couple of reasons behind this display. Uh, first of all, it may have been just to try to maintain some semblance of the weightiness and terror on the spirit's part. If he, goes out 
throwing the guy around and screaming that may cause other people who, uh, to, be, to be fearful of those kind of spirits. But it actually could have been what Christ desired on his exit for proof that the man had truly been delivered, that he was completely delivered, that this, this spirit goes out of him with so much drama that no one could say, well, maybe there's a little bit left in there. We don't know. I don't know. All that speculation. But what we do know from Luke's parallel account of this event in Luke chapter 4 is that he came out of him having done him no harm. Man, what's the lesson in that? Listen to Listen, the devil may threaten to tear you apart, but once you have been claimed by Christ as his very own, the devil can do you no lasting harm whatsoever. Martin Luther famously wrote in his beautiful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and though this world with devils filled, to threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. He muzzled. Jesus was first regarded by the people in the synagogue as having words spoken with authority. Now as this poor man sits delivered from the power of the devil, they see that he not only speaks, but he also acts with authority. Verse 27 says, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Now, when we say this is a new teaching, when they, when they proclaim this is a new teaching, we're not suggesting that it had no moorings in the truth of the, of the Old Testament law or the holiness of the utterances of the prophets. It wasn't new in that it was completely disconnected or unhitched, as a famous preacher said a few years ago, from the Old Testament. But because it was... It was a new teaching because it was accompanied with inherent authority. Teaching and preaching would always be the core, of, uh, the core purpose of Jesus' earthly ministry. He came to proclaim. But that teaching and preaching would be accompanied with miracles, with healings, with deliverances to illuminate the Father's approval of him and to validate his words with divine power. Now, Jesus had witnesses to this power, as well as those who would testify to his authority in using that power. And I think it's probably safe to say that up to this point, no Jew had ever been to a service at the synagogue like this one. You think that would have made an impression? Well, they hadn't seen anything yet. It wouldn't be long for news about Jesus to spread far and wide, and that's exactly what happened. Verse 28, and at once... His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So I'm done. I have one question. And I, I hope that as I ask this question that you'll hear it and that you'll seriously allow the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to examine you as you hear it. 
you think about Jesus' speaking with authority, his acting with authority, I want to ask you, have you become so acquainted? Have you become so impressed with the authority of Christ's words? Have you become so acquainted and impressed with the effect of his power that, that, that with one word he can set a prisoner free, that he can transform a lowly sinner into a saint? Are you so impressed and acquainted with the authority of his words and the effect of his power that you, like the people in verse 28, are spreading his fame to everyone you know so that they can experience him too? Let's stand. about to come to the table of the Lord to receive, if I could have my helpers come forward, we uh, to receive the, the elements of the bread and the cup. And I just want to, um, I just want to remind you that, that um, Jesus' authority was proven on the cross beyond any shadow of a doubt. He said to those who, who um, you know, were threatening him, he said, I lay my life down and I can take it up again. In fact, he said, so that I can take it up again. He had authority even over his own life and death. And if that's true about Jesus, what on earth are you so gripped this morning by worry? What is it that you're so gripped with worry because you have not yet learned to trust his authority over everything that you might face? And I just want to ask you today, as you consider his cross and the authority over all the powers of darkness that it represents, I just want to ask you to consider that, that, that maybe this is the time where you lay that thing down that you're so terrified of. That you say to, to a Jesus, you look up to him and you say, with what authority? Yeah, scribes, preachers, teachers, book writers, they don't talk like this. This is a whole other level of authority that we're hearing from you. And Jesus, I, I believe if you have that authority, you can speak to anything. You can speak to the, those uh, forces inside and outside of me that would torment my soul and command them to be muzzled. You can even command them to be gone. And so don't take this supper flippantly come and let it be to you as it touches your tongue let it be a reminder of the authority of Christ to come right now and rescue you if you would just come and receive the elements we'll, uh, and then go back to your seat we'll take them together in just a moment I usually make this little kind of uh, announcement I guess before we uh, distribute the elements and, and didn't today so I want to remind you that um, if you're here, I know we have a lot of guests here and I don't know you, but if you're here and you have not resolved the question of where you stand in relation to God, um, it doesn't matter uh, what you just kind of feel or think. Um, it matters if you've, if you've responded to God the way His Word um, commands you to. I just want to encourage you, even if it would be better for you to dispose of those elements just 
throw them in the trash and to partake of them right now because this is this is something that means something and it uh, it's not magic it's just bread and and juice in one sense uh, but but what it what it symbolizes and what what the Holy Spirit does through it is very important and so um, if, if that's you man we'd love to talk to you and tell you how you can know how you can be sure but but uh, the Bible says that you can actually eat and drink condemnation to yourself if you take it unworthily. So I just want to remind you of that. Um, I want to read to you today from, from uh, Matthew's Gospel. He says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after uh, blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, Take and eat, this is my body. Let's take the bread together. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's take the cup together. Let's give thanks. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful sacrifice, this wonderful offering of your blood, your body, to cleanse us, to make us new, to recreate us. Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that we would walk worthy of you in the strength it provides. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would extend your hands in the receiving position, I want to give you probably the shortest benediction I ever have. But I want to tell you, this is, this is the first scripture the Lord laid on my heart while I was preparing this message. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.